Rich Goldberg just finished a year on the National Security Council, where he served as the director for countering Iranian weapons of mass destruction. Now back at FDD as a senior advisor, he's going to explain to us how the NSC operates, its relationship with other government departments, how it makes policies and attempts to have those policies implemented, what it's doing and what it's managed to get done during President Trump's first three years in office. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Well, Rich Goldberg, welcome. It's good to see you. You've been about a year you spent on the National Security Council. Um, must have been quite an adventure, and I kind of want to hear about it. Start with this. I think people hear all the time about the National Security Council, and they think, oh, it must be like a city council. Maybe there's you know a dozen guys sitting around a table or in some hearing room, and they're discussing various issues. That's not quite what it's like. Talk about what it is like today, and then I want you to talk a little bit about how it evolved into what it is today. But start with what's it like? You go into the National Security Council. What does that even mean? Yeah, the National Security Council is the primary policymaking organ of the Office of the President for national security policy. And so you have a mix of political appointees of the president, uh, these uh, commissioned officers of the president uh, who run various directorates, uh, both regional uh, and functional directorates. So all the different areas of the world are covered. Uh, every country uh, falls into a region. Uh, and each of those regions has its own directorate. And then all the functional threats we think about of cyber and terrorism and weapons of mass destruction, pandemics, these are all accounted for as well in functional directorates. And all of these directorates have counterparts over in the State Department, the Defense Department, Treasury Department, and others who are also working on these at the same time. And the idea is, obviously, rather than have all these different departments and agencies uh, working in silos, you have one body that is organizing all of policy together, running the meetings, coordinating the policy, making sure that everyone's rowing in the same direction so that the president's policies are well served. And of course, we talk about it being in the White House, but it's really in the old executive office building. It's not in the White House proper. That's right. You have the national security advisor and usually the deputy national security advisor over in the uh, West Wing of the White House. Obviously, you have the Situation Room that you've seen on television and movies uh, over there in the West Wing as well. Uh, and then all the other staff of the National Security Council uh, and a lot of the Executive Office of the President, other offices as well, the, the Economic Council and others, also there in the Executive Office building. And you sort of just spend your day walking uh, across uh, West Exec Avenue uh, back and forth uh, for meetings and briefings. And how many 
how many how many what are the numbers of the National Security Council at, at this point? So it's really sort of grown, especially in the last decade. Uh, we're talking about something that started in 1947 under the Truman administration, under the National Security Act. Uh, Congress mandated this, sort of imposed it on the presidency uh, post World War II, as we were seeing the coming threat of communism. Uh, that, at that time, we're talking about just a, a few people, just a few dozen. Uh, that sort of gets reorganized through different presidents, different national security advisors. You think of John F. Kennedy just wants the counsel of his brother, uh, maybe a couple of others. Uh, you go all the way into the Reagan administration, uh, the Kissinger before that, um, certainly under Bush and Obama. You start seeing a lot more use of the National Security Council structure uh, when you have a very powerful forward-leaning national security advisor who's close to the president. It becomes the way to control the policy, make sure that cabinet secretaries aren't coloring outside the lines. Uh, under Obama, the there was real explosion in the personnel of the National Security Council. Uh, a lot of detailees brought over from different departments and agencies, uh, growing uh, from the Bush administration, almost doubling it in size. Uh, and so there is an effort underway now. Uh, to try to scale back to the levels uh, pre-Obama during the Bush administration to have a lean, mean fighting machine at the NSC uh, where you don't have a lot of people sitting around with not much to do. And you also don't have a lot of people uh, who are sort of minders uh, from the bureaucracy. Uh, if, if they're there for a specific job, um, then we need them. Uh, and uh, that they can they can do that well, uh, but uh, there's no need to just uh, staff up and have a lot of people just to have more meetings. From one administration to the other, are there those who remain on the National Security Council? Yeah, if you're in the career staff, uh, typically you may be in a detail position uh, for multiple years at a time. Uh, really subject to the whim of the National Security Advisor, the National Security Council. And so there will be plenty of people who would have bridged from the Obama administration uh, into the Trump administration. Uh, some are still there. Uh, some have been appointed uh, senior officials. Um, those are typically going to be more on the, the administrative staff mm -hmm. side, people who just know how the process works and knows uh, all the different administrative functions to keep it uh, well-oiled. Typically, in the policymaking roles, you're going to have people who are appointed by this president, uh, selected by this national security advisor to be commissioned officers of the president. Um, but you do have the, the the possibility, I think we may have seen it, of holdovers from, say, the Obama administration to the Trump administration who may not be inclined to support the policies of the current president, no? I, I think what's more likely and, and where this sort of thinking comes from is you have a lot of people who are career uh, bureaucrats, career civil servants, uh, let's say from the State Department, uh, from the Treasury Department, from the Defense Department, and uh, they get their one, two years uh, to detail to the National Security Council. It's a big deal for them. It's a milestone mm. career maker. Mm. But they probably carry a lot of biases. They carry stuff from the bureaucracy with them, from their home department or agency. And that doesn't always fit with the worldview of the current president. Uh, and so uh, you may see sometimes just bureaucratic inertia that's undermining policies. You may see times in which uh, people say this doesn't make any sense. It goes against conventional wisdom. This is not what my home office believes. Um, but typically, 
uh, by and large, you find uh, patriotic Americans who come to serve. If you're a civil servant, they've served under both administrations, Republican and Democrat, and they're there to do their job. They're functional experts, they're regional experts, and they answer to political appointees of this president. Within the National Security Council, how many different, how would, I'm not sure how you call it, divisions or departments are there? In other words, you've got, obviously you're going to have somebody, one, somebody who's a director in charge of Europe. But you're going to have somebody in charge of, say, Africa, right? How many different – what would you call it and how, to, how is it divided and organized? Yeah, so, so you have uh, – I would, I would really look at it in three ways. Uh, you have sort of the administrative uh, directorates. So you have the actual administrative side of the house of the hiring and HR and personnel, things of that nature, the IT departments. Uh, you have the legal – a directorate, which is a, a big backbone, an extension of the Office of the General Counsel uh, in, in the Office of the President uh, with their national security team uh, there as well. Uh, and then you also have the regional directorates. So you mentioned you have uh, Europe, you have uh, Africa, you have Asia, you have Western Hemisphere. Uh, and then also you have all the functional directors we talked about a little bit earlier, counterterrorism, counterproliferation, uh, international organizations. Uh, these are the kinds of issues that we think about. Uh, sometimes you might add a directorate. You might subtract a directorate. You might combine portfolios. Who does that? Portfolios. The National Security Advisor It'll be subject to the National Security Advisor uh, with the consent of approval of the president. Uh, and so – uh, in, in this administration, they created a new uh, directorate called Emerging Technologies. Uh, they had a directorate called Strategic Plans. Uh, I think those are, are, are both being phased out under the uh, new uh, National Security Advisor. Uh, sometimes you might have a directorate uh, that uh, has, for instance, uh, originally under uh, uh, John Bolton and, and his predecessors, there was a Mideast uh, directorate. Now there's a Mideast North Africa directorate. They took North Africa and combined it with the Mideast region. So a lot of this is the preference of the National Security Advisor and how he wants or how he or she wants to manage uh, the National Security Council. And what the National Security Council is coming up with um, are policy recommendations for the president or something more than that? So this really now goes to what the preference of the National Security Advisor is and what the culture at that moment is for the council. Uh, when you had a national security advisor uh, like John Bolton, very empowered by the president, uh, a known quantity. For a while. Uh, right, <laughs> for a while. Uh, known quantity in Washington, policy expert, very deep, uh, strong views, uh, wants to assert himself uh, as if he's a member of the cabinet uh, and does regularly uh, with, with the full empowerment of the president at the time. Uh, at that point, you're going to have a very forward-leaning staff in the National Security Council where you have the views uh, that have been expressed by the president, articulated to you by the National Security Advisor, and it's your job to go execute and make sure every department and agency is following exactly on that uh, song sheet of music. Uh, you th could then switch to uh, a National Security Advisor like Robert O'Brien, who we have now, and sort of step back to a traditional coordination role, as they say, where you're not policy making, you're policy coordinating. Uh, and you chair meetings to hear the views on different matters uh, from the departments and agencies, try to build consensus. Uh, if there are conflicting views, pass those along to senior uh, officials. And you start going up a food chain where at the lowest level, called sub-policy coordination committee meetings. Uh, you have a working level, usually a deputy assistant secretary level meeting, 
to say, here's a problem. What are the solutions? Does anybody disagree? You then go up the ladder to a policy coordination committee meeting. These are the assistant secretary level meetings. You then go up to a deputies committee and then the principals committee and ultimately the National Security Council itself, uh, which is comprised of the president and his core national security cabinet. Well, one can easily imagine that the, that the, the president is concerned about, say, China's various policies, intellectual property theft, whatever. Um, and wants to have policy recommendations on that. He doesn't, he hasn't figured it all out. And now the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, the Treasury Secretary, maybe the, the, the Secretary of Defense, they all have very different views on what you should do about that, how tough you should be, how much it should be a, a conversation, a diplomatic effort, how much you should threaten. Um, how does how does how, how do you resolve those? First of all, how are those disagreements or debates aired? And second, how are they resolved, assuming that they are? So there's the formal process, and then there's the informal yeah. process, and it varies by president and how the president wants to conduct uh, the decision making process. The formal process uses the National Security Council process, and uh, this president issued a National Security uh, Memorandum, NSPM four. Uh, which directs exactly how to coordinate these matters. Uh, it, it says the National Security Council is in charge of coordination. The National Security Advisor uh, will chair these principal meetings. Uh, and then on down, the Deputy National Security Advisor for the Deputies Committee, the, the these policy coordination committees we talked about. And it's the National Security Council's job to collect the information, deconflict, and present the president with the options. Um, that's how it's supposed to work in formal process. But of course, uh, if you have a cabinet member who has a very close relationship to the president, mm. uh, they don't need to use the formal process and let there be some sort of filter uh, between them and the president. The National Security Advisor doesn't have to be playing a game of phone tag uh, to, to say, oh, well, this is what Secretary Pompeo thinks. This is what Secretary Mnuchin thinks. When Secretary Mnuchin and Secretary Pompeo have their own relationship with the president and speak to him often. And so I think that you you see, uh, based on how much political capital you may have, uh, what the level of controversy of the issue is, do you have support from other members of the administration uh, on your position? And I think at that point, uh, if you are a savvy uh, political player inside a bureaucracy and inside an administration, uh, you pick your moments of whether you're going to use the process or whether you're going to go straight to the Oval Office. And in reality, say there's a disagreement between the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State, real disagreement over what the policy should be. At the end of the day, is it usual? Is it always the case that the president says, okay, I've heard you both out. I'm going with my Secretary of State on this. Tell everybody to get their ducks in order and do it. Is, is, is it that clean and that, and that, and that clear? And is that the, how a president normally does it? Ultimately, it is that clean and clear. Uh, there are there could be changing moments. Uh, you could uh, re-engage at, at another moment. Uh, you could have the exact same conversation, the exact same argument in front of the president uh, on a Monday uh, and then follow up the next Monday and perhaps get a different result. Uh, anybody who's ever worked in government uh, for a principal knows that that's exactly how it works. Uh, when uh, you don't get your way, sometimes uh, you build a case, uh, you still think you're right. Uh, you you look for moments to present your case again when the opportunity presents itself to see if the decision changes. That's not foreign in Washington under either kind of administration. Uh, but uh, ultimately, uh, if there is a decision of the moment to be had, 
then you present the views in front of the president. The president decides, and he's the president, and you follow suit. Under McMaster, you had the national security strategy written. He, uh, he oversaw that. He had people we know working on that very intensively, very hard, came out with a national security strategy that, again, subjectively, I think was pretty good, pretty interesting. I think it was it it it, it did things that we hadn't that hadn't been done before by previous presidents, such as recognizing that China was not liberalizing, that China was not moderating, that China was not becoming a strategic partner, that China was an adversary, saw itself that way, and was a threat. We didn't have that under previous presidents. Now you've got this national security strategy. It's meant to be the guide for the government in terms of policy. Policy is supposed to evolve from that, consistent with that, if I understand correctly. And now you've got a new national security advisor coming in and new staff coming in. Do they say, well, that document is what we've adopted, so that's what we, we're going to work with? Um, and if they say that, do they mean it? <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, the national security strategy, uh, which then bleeds into the national defense strategy, the national military strategy, uh, these are all documents that are briefed to the president. They have the president's input uh, and then uh, ultimately the president's approval to move forward. And all of our plans and strategies uh, stem from those from those key, key national security documents. And so uh, a lot of incredible work from a lot of people, input from inside and outside government went into that. As you mentioned, we know a lot of people involved. Uh, and uh, ultimately, when you have a Republican administration come in, uh, just like when you have a Democratic administration, there are factions, obviously. There are nuanced differences. There are disagreements uh, within the party, within the, the senior policymakers uh, who have a leadership role and a voice on national security in both parties. But ultimately, a lot of the top, top line sort of strategy elements, ideas uh, are going to be very similar uh, whether you're talking to a McMaster or to a Bolton or to a Flynn, uh, the, you, no, nobody's going to say China and Russia are not our top state adversaries that we need to be preparing for. No one's going to say that then Iran and North Korea shouldn't come next. No one's going to downplay terrorism or the threats of cyber or other things, right? So uh, aligning sort of the top line of where America should be focused, how we should be aligning our resources uh, is, is not something where you have a new person come in of the same party affiliation, the same president, and say, you know what, this document was wrong. It's going to be sort of below that level of how are we doing these things? What are our tactics? Uh, what are our plans and strategies that we're implementing? That's where you're going to get disagreement. Flynn brief, brought in people. McMaster comes in. He brings in his own people. Very much tries to establish a, a process um, based on his, on, on, on his policy uh, approach and his problem-solving approach. Um, next, Bolton comes in a very different personality from that of McMaster. Talk a little bit about the time. And you were under Bolton the, for the time you were there. Talk about Bolton's tenure, how that – whatever you can tell us about it will be interesting, I'm sure. Well, uh, John Bolton is a very unique character uh, in American uh, history and life. Uh, there, there, you know, sort of uh, – uh, stands on his own. There will never be uh, a John Bolton. There never was a John Bolton. There is only one. Uh, and so uh, his tenure is one that is exactly uh, as you would expect it uh, from looking at his career uh, during the Bush administration and prior. Um, he's very set in his ways, uh, knows what he thinks is right, has, has great moral clarity and direction, uh, strong in his views. 
uh, and is not afraid to get into uh, an administrative uh, interagency uh, bulldog t- type clash. Uh, he's very empowering of his staff to uh, to move forward and try to uh, get uh, departments and agencies to align uh, with with these policy views. Uh, so uh, I enjoyed uh, my time uh, in the Security Council. I'm honored uh, that he uh, allowed me to serve uh, his deputy as well, uh, Dr. Kupperman, uh, two incredible people uh, for our national security and uh, wish them both the best. There's a difference between making policy and implementing policy. And it seems to me that sometimes, not just in this administration, but not least in this administration, policy gets made rhetorically, but then doesn't necessarily get implemented. It doesn't get carried out. Everybody doesn't say, okay, I know what I have to do and I'm going to do it in order to implement this policy. Would you agree that's that's a, a current problem? Uh, that's the case in many strategies and plans. Uh, I don't think it's a problem just under the Trump administration. I think a lot of this is when bureaucracies decide that they know better uh, than than the administration that they're working under, uh, or mm-hmm. sometimes political appointees uh, sort of uh, go rogue. The, they've been appointed to a senior role. They're experts in their field. They know what's supposed to happen, what's not, and they'll let their principal talk to the president if anybody doesn't like it. Uh, and so whether you're at the Defense Department, the State Department, uh, there's plenty of times where you'll say, uh, well, isn't this supposed to be happening? Why aren't we doing this? Uh, and it's either because it's being slow rolled by the bureaucracy uh, or there's an actual policy disagreement uh, that has simply not reached the president. And even though at that moment you're undermining the president, uh, if he doesn't know about it, if it hasn't elevated to his level to do something about it, then it just sits there in perpetuity. Rich Koberg, thanks again for being here today. And thanks to all of you listening today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Foreign Policy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.